Hi, and welcome back to The Fray. Very excited because this is our 20th episode. There's a lot more than I thought I'd get through. If you've been with me for the full 20, thank you so much for being a loyal listener. Just want to make a couple quick announcements. Actually, just one announcement, I guess. I am finally on social media. You can find me on Twitter at The Fray Podcast, so at The Fray Podcast. And I got lucky because my Facebook ampersand is also at The Fray Podcast. So if you want to reach out to me for any reason to tell me how bad a job I'm doing or stop talking so much about math, go ahead and hit me up on Twitter and Facebook. Episode 20 is really technically the sixth episode of the series all about Everiste Galwa. We are five episodes deep so far into the history of algebra. So if you want to play catch up, feel free to listen to the first five episodes. They are in order. And if you are someone who likes to just jump in and learn asynchronously, or you have been with me the whole time, I want to welcome you as you join me as we enter the fray. I saved someone's life. Now, it sounds super dramatic, and I guess in some ways it was. I mean, I did, I feel, and the person whose life I saved felt that I had saved his life. Now, it happened when I was a Marine. Now, I wasn't in the shit, as they say, so this isn't a war story. I was on my weekend. And I and a couple of my buddies were doing some bouldering in Joshua Tree. So bouldering is not rock climbing. Uh, we had no gear and even less experience. We just like climbing rocks and jumping on them and hanging out in the desert, I guess. At some point, I found myself alone with another guy, a guy named Fisher. He was a fellow Lance Corporal like I was. We were both enlisted. Now, he had been my ride to Joshua Tree. So we were wrapping up for the day and we're heading back to his car. And we're jumping from boulder to boulder, which had given us our share of scrapes, and we have given it our share of healthy skin, but we were happy and hopping right along. Now, eventually, we found ourselves staring down at a 30-foot drop onto the jagged teeth of some smaller rocks and boulders. Across from us, across a five-foot expanse of nothingness, was another three-and-a-half-story boulder. So how did we get there? Well, we hadn't been paying attention, and we had climbed up and up and up and kept bouldering until we had reached this tiny abyss. So we had a choice. We could either backtrack and find another way to the car or make the leap and descend from there. We chose to jump. Now with my heart thumping, I took one last look down. Now Fisher was behind me, hemming and hawing. Now if I had to describe the guy, I would say he was sort of a grown-up version of Vern from the movie Stand By Me. You know, you guys want to go see a dead body? That guy. Anyway, Fisher was the type of guy who would lick his lips and sputter about how far down it was and that a fall would certainly mean death or at least a broken back. So I didn't feel like spending too much time hearing him hem and haw, so I jumped. And I made it. Now, I remember I was wearing black Chuck Taylors, sort of my go-to sneaker. And the rubber soles were soft from the heat and friction of what we've been doing all day. 
So when I landed, I gripped into that coarse surface and I quickly dropped to a knee, which of course opened a fresh scrape, drawing fresh blood against the rough rock, but it was better than taking another step as there was no other step. The other half of the boulder was actually cleaved off to at least a halfway point down, 15 feet below, where there was a small shelf that dropped an additional 20 feet onto the jagged rocks. Now I turned to warn Fisher, but he was already in the air. Now his bulk, and he was not a small guy, blotting out the sun as he was flying towards me. Now he landed with a thud and a huff, but crucially, he did not drop to one knee, but stayed standing. Fisher was going over. So I reached out with my left arm, which I recall yelling at myself internally for doing so since it is my weaker side. But I grabbed at his shoulder, which quickly became his bicep, then his elbow, and then his tricep. And finally, I was able to grab around his wrist. Now, at first, it was a terrible idea because he had 40 pounds on me and all the momentum. He was going over and taking me with him. Now, instinctually, I just dropped to the ground, trying to increase my leverage. And in the act, I jerked Fisher down hard, smashing his unprotected face into the unforgiving boulder, drawing more blood and knocking the wind out of him. But we were not falling to our deaths. Now, once Fisher gained his breath, he and I worked to get him and I safely off the boulder. My knees and chin a bloody mess, his lips and right ear looking like it went through a meat grinder, but no broken backs, no deadness. Back in the car, headed back to base, I made a joke of having a near-death experience. This did not sit lightly with Fisher. He was very serious about what had just happened. He knew this because this was not the first time he had courted death. He had, in fact, been in a swimming pool accident as a 14-year-old, hit his head on, while diving into the pool, and got knocked unconscious and had drowned. He was dead for almost a minute before coming back. He proceeded to tell me that he definitely had what is commonly known as a near-death experience. Fisher's recounting of his brief journey to the other side coincided with many of the popular imagery that surrounds stories of the nearly dead. Feelings of euphoria, tunnel vision, or seeing a bright light at the end of a tunnel, and of course, seeing God. Fisher checked off all three. Now, I found it fascinating. I was interested in the supernatural big time at that point and enjoyed Fisher's passionate retelling of his experience. But I also had questions. Like about the euphoria, wasn't it just as likely that feeling is caused by the release of endorphins by the brain to cope with the high levels of stress that are sure to accompany a near-death experience? Sure, said Fisher. It's possible. But that's not what happened to me. I saw a bright light at the end of a long tunnel. About that, I interrupted, would it be a surprise to know that the human visual system is designed from the center out, meaning that if the cells responsible for vision fire randomly, as they probably would under the stress of dying, then they are much more likely to fire in the center of your vision and not on the edges, creating the tunnel effect. Fisher just shook his head. He wasn't sure he even understood what I was talking about. At the end of his tunnel was Jesus Christ, and that was all he needed to know when it came to the truth of what actually happened to him. I guess then, I countered, you wouldn't find it interesting that there has been no recorded instance of a religious person meeting a deity from another religion in their version of nearly dying. Well, that makes sense, replied Fisher. That makes perfect sense. Listen, he stopped me before I could continue. 
It's going to take a lot more than experiments, theories, and science to get me to not believe in Jesus. What folks like y'all don't understand is that there is a fixed order to things, a way that things are supposed to be. It's going to take a heck of a lot more than fancy thinking to get me to believe in anything else. So Fisher, as far as I was concerned, had won the day. I sat back in the passenger seat and nursed my wounds, both on my extremities and also to my argument. What would it take to get people to believe in something different, to lose faith in the fixed order, and to want to turn to an alternative one? Now, after almost 12 centuries, algebra was just such an alternative, but there was no realistic version of the future that would include numbers, facts, and science coming out anytime soon. So at this point, algebra had a name and a place in the pantheon of mathematical firmament, So that's the end of the story, right? After Al-Khwarizmi and his fellow members of the House of Wisdom in Baghdad defined the algebraic process, all that was left to do was to start algebraing our collective asses off. But of course, that is not what went down. In fact, there would be almost a 600-year gap between Al-Jabbar and the start of the West's use of the powerful new branch of mathematics called algebra. So what took so long? Now, much of the delay can be chalked up simply to the struggle to disseminate information during a time of great strife, ignorance, and all-out war. But through all this batshit crazy bullshit, somehow, knowledge continued to spread. Despite my dramatic declarations on past episodes, math did not totally die out in Europe during the Dark Ages. In fact, it was firmly placed in the educational system of the time, known as the Seven Liberal Arts, broken up into two major parts— called the quadrivium and the trivium. The former, the quadrivium, was made up of four subjects, and that was what was taught to younger students. The subjects taught during this time were arithmetic, music, geometry, and astronomy. Now, just listing those out, it's pretty apparent that math was not dead. It is also telling that all of these subjects are closely tied to the ancient Greek teachings of Plato and Aristotle. There was no doubt that it was believed that all four were connected to the belief in the metaphysical powers of math. In case you are interested, the arithmetic that was being taught did not include mathematical basics such as multiplication, division, or even subtraction. They were taught as separate subjects and were not part of every student's curriculum. Instead, the quadrivium focused on stuff like defining odd and even numbers, ratios and proportions, and the all-important harmony of numbers. That last one, the harmony, was and is a key point that in many ways held back mathematics in Europe. While the powerful corporate religion that was in charge at the time applied mathematical knowledge to practical stuff like architecture and taxes, the average person was mostly taught how numbers administered to the great mystery of creation, reinforcing a belief in a supernatural world that required subservience to literally everything under the sun. In this world of supposed harmony, stuff like irrational numbers were not only discouraged, but in many cases all out ignored. This, of course, was not something new and did not come about simply due to a need to justify a metaphysical belief. Thousands of years before Christianity and Islam, the Sumerians and Egyptians found that they had no use for stuff like irrational and negative numbers either. For them, this made perfect sense as they were trying to figure out How much barley to dole out? So what can someone do with the square root of two's worth of grain? I can recall my own struggles as a math student. 
My whole life, I've harbored a healthy anxiety concerning math. Every time I would attempt to solve an algebra problem and the solution was anything but a whole number, I would be sure that I was doing something wrong. This is probably a common feeling for many people, and it certainly was for everyone for millennia. It was mentioned in a previous episode that algebra's ability to function in a way that produced funky outcomes was a big reason why most ancient peoples relied on geometry, as weird numerical solutions all but disappear when one is using lines, angles, and ratios. In case you were wondering, I was not able to harness geometry any better than I did algebra. In fact, I failed both geometry classes I took in high school. To quote Forrest Gump, I'm not a smart man. It took a very, very long time for anyone, anywhere, to start to realize that in these useless answers was an extremely powerful way to understand and control the material world. Here is a hint. Our boy Galois had a lot to do with this, and we are still about a thousand years away from his blowing the doors off number theory and rocketing human understanding into the future, where we all are checking our Twitter and Facebook feeds. So because harmony was at the core of math in Europe, there was little actual math being practiced and explored. It can also be said that this reticence was to use algebra properly was pervasive in the Islamic world as well. Despite the efforts of al-Khwarizmi and his fellow mathematicians at the House of Wisdom, no one was willing to tangle with the numbers in such a way, whether it was due to their faith or just the fact that, like me, irrational numbers and most other outcomes that algebra could provide just didn't make sense to people. So instead of flourishing, algebra stayed in survival mode, playing a game of whack-a-mole with history, popping up here and there, mostly due to the efforts of individuals trying to get some of their fellow humans to see the power that lies within the discipline. Some of the highlights of algebra hanging on by its fingernails include the court of Charlemagne, who ruled over much of Europe for almost 50 years from 768 to 814 AD. Now, he ruled basically France and parts of Germany, Switzerland, northern Italy, places like that. Now, under his steady leadership, many of Europe's finest minds traveled as far away from Ireland and Russia to set up shop in his court. In many ways, this mirrors what was happening in Baghdad in around the same time in the House of Wisdom. The glory was to be found in a powerful ruler who would often incorporate the best and the brightest. Now, Western intellectual history would have been remarkably different if Charlemagne and his court of big brains were allowed to continue to grow and influence future generations. But alas, it was not to be, as extremely unfriendly neighbors to the north decided to crash the party. These famous invaders were the Vikings, and they had no use whatsoever for big brains. The Vikings invaded and put an end to the burgeoning intellectual society that may have been starting and kicked off one of the worst centuries in recorded human history, the tragic and extremely dark 10th century. Now, one holdover from the Carolingian Renaissance, which is what historians call the reign of Charlemagne, who also went by the name Charles the Great, and my personal favorite, Carl, he did offer a very limited refuge for algebra in the form of establishing the monastery and the university. Not that a ton of math was actually being done in these places, but it did provide a place for some knowledge to reside, away from the marauders, and in time, these institutions, mainly in the form of universities, would become ground zero for mathematical learning and expansion. But that would take a long time. Now, in the meantime, the other institution that was founded, the monastery, would provide a basic lifeline to math, namely in the form of copied texts from other parts of the world, mostly Arabic, and store them in their vaults 
and that is where many of them would stay for centuries, collecting dust. One of the biggest problems facing algebra in these times was the fact that, that there was a gigantic holy war going on in the form of the Crusades. Over centuries, vast armies from Europe would invade what they called the Holy Lands, ostensibly to free it from the heathen Muslims that had taken over control of the area. When a war of ideals like this occurs, human life is not the only casualty. So are ideas. That is kind of the whole point of fighting in the first place, to completely wipe out the enemy and everything they stood for and believed in. There is no definitive number that is agreed upon by historians for the total number of crusades that the West launched into various parts of the Islamic empire, beginning in 1096. The most commonly agreed upon number is that there were nine major crusades, spanning from the first part of the 11th century all the way to the start of the 14th century, around 1300. Now, in other parts of the internet, you can find lists comprised of dozens and dozens of crusades launched from all over Western Europe. Now, it seems to me that it is a matter of how you like to classify things that matters. The nine major crusades definitely were the causa bella for all the other minor crusades that would follow in their wake. I mean, considering the size and scope of a major crusade, it is safe to say that there really was just one large conflagration that can be classified as the crusade. But that's just me. It's hard to imagine that there were any times of sustained peace in the three centuries of the various crusades. The world was rife with power struggles, both large and small. The crusades were hardly the only conflict happening at this time. The Islamic empire was busy attacking and subjugating everything and everyone it could. Peaceful places of learning, like the House of Wisdom, deservedly earns our admiration. A large portion of the Muslim world was engaged in the same sort of destructive bullshit that all other empires have done throughout history. Now, on the other hand, the Western world of Christendom had to deal with its own shit in the form of batshit, meaning they were living in a batshit crazy time. There was just so much fighting going on, it's hard to imagine anyone having any time to do anything else. And just getting through the day in one piece must have been a victory. Who had time to learn anything? While every crusade save the very first one was an unmitigated disaster in terms of military success, it was much more successful in branding our way better than their way. When it came to stuff like numbers and numbering systems and the accoutrements of math that would afford one a better result, the Crusades were very successful, at least at large, in painting anything from the West as a waste of time and more than likely evil and deserved of eradication. An example of that comes from the trials and tribulations of a guy named Gerbert. That's G-E-R-B-E-R, -E which I'm sure should be pronounced with an accent, but I just like saying Gerbert. He was from a place called Aureliac, and he lived, which I guess is in France, and he lived roughly 940 to about 1000 AD. Now, because he lived before the launch of the First Crusade, he was someone who spent quite a bit of time with Muslims without attempting to kill them. And for some reason, the Muslims also refrained from slaying Gerbert, and instead both parties were able to learn some things. Gerbert learned the Arabic language. He started to use this new simple numbering system that the Muslims were using to such great success. And in turn, he also started to use the Arabic abacus. Now, combining the simple efficiency of the Hindu Arabic number system with an abacus was game-changing for those interested in calculating. Of course, there were not too many of those type of people in Western Europe at the time. Now, a little bit ago, I asked the question of what took so long 
for algebra to gain a foothold in the West. I see that this is the wrong question to ask. Instead, a better query is to whether or not the West would ever adopt the new improved tools of mathematics. Europeans held steadfast to their use of Roman numerals in a much more clumsy version of the abacus called a counting board that was based on that same awkward number system of their toga-wearing forefathers. Now, this was an enduring decision, as the numbers that we all know and love today, Arabic numbers, weren't widely adopted by the West until the 15th century. Now, this is in spite of many attempts by some of the best and brightest, you know, including our homie Gerbert, other names like Abelard of Bath and the Italian Leonardo of Pisa, known by his more famous moniker, Star-Lord. Sorry, the name I meant to say was Fibonacci, which is one of the most famous names in all of mathematical history. All of these men tried and failed to drag Europe into the modern world. Why? Well, we already gave an example of Gerbert. He was able to, in a time of extreme volatility, study in the Islamic stronghold in southern Spain. Fibonacci was working with Arabic scholars on developing new ways to approach the understanding of numbers. It appears that things were looking up. Is it just wishful thinking to think how much more progress would have been made had the West embraced algebra centuries earlier than it had? I mean, the chart plotting the growth and understanding of our world based on our application of algebraic algorithmic principles is self-evident. Since the Renaissance, it has been a straight line pointing up. There is no reason to think that we as a Western culture wouldn't have attained similar heights earlier had we been given a few centuries head start. But upon further consideration, I do believe that is just wishful thinking. The reason why Abelard, Gerbert, and Fibonacci, and a myriad of others failed to bring about an earlier form of the Renaissance was not due to conflict and strife. I believe it was because it would have upended the perceived fixed order of things, hearkening back to Lance Corporal Fisher's confident statement of faith. I think it is safe to say that Christians of the West were quite possibly never going to adopt the new method for doing math. Now, that claim of never may seem like a bold one, but considering the world we live in now, in the year 2021, is full of people who believe in angels, heaven, hell, and demons, but do not believe that Donald Trump was responsible for the first non-peaceful transfer of power in the history of the United States. Now, it is one thing that I have learned over the course of the last five years or so is that facts truly do not matter to the large amounts of the American faithful. Not all people of faith, of course, but millions of millions whose belief in their ultimate rightness is enough to scare the U.S. Congress into acquitting a traitor. So it's much more apt for me to describe folks like Abelard, Fibonacci, and Gerbert as fools on an errand that was preordained to fail. Again, not too dissimilar to what the House managers had to deal with over the course of this most recent impeachment proceedings. Destined to fail because regardless of the facts, regardless of actually being part of, in fact, the target of violent insurrection, the elected officials that populate the U.S. Senate of the United States chose to accept the alternative reality being proposed by Trump and his enormous number of followers. Is it any surprise that in 2021, in a society so much more liberal than 11th century Europe, material facts and truth are still failing in the face of metaphysical truth? I mean, what chance did Fibonacci have back then? It is very plausible to envision a Western culture 
that would continue to live exclusively by metaphysical truth. That is because there are hundreds of millions of people who would still welcome that to this day. In an interesting twist, this is something that the Christian West shares with their fellow metaphysical truthers, the Muslims. Islamic society in 2021 is an even more extreme version of a world exclusively run by metaphysical belief systems. Again, not every Muslim or Muslim country, but I believe it is relatively self-evident that all material knowledge must run the faith gauntlet as far as Islamic belief is concerned. So what happened? What was able to break the vice lock that religion had placed on learning and specifically math in the form of algebra? What could have broken the spell? It couldn't have been war, invasion, strife, and misery. We've already mentioned the Crusades, which is how people like Fibonacci learned of Arabic numbers. But of course, he was largely ignored. But there was also things like the Norman Conquest, the Viking invasions, and Attila the Hun to contend with as well. All that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to loosen the iron grasp of religion from choking the life out of mathematics. Three centuries of war and invasion had only led to an actual strengthening of this grip. But enter the Deus Ex Machina, or Machina. I always say that wrong. I became familiar with the term through my love of movies. It is a phrase that is used to describe the thing, the widget, the idea, the person, the event, whatever, that the screenwriter inserts into a story to help the protagonists win the day. Now, I'm sort of a collector of bad uses of these ex machinas in movies, from the hot air balloon in the talking laser albino gorilla epic Congo, or Bill and Ted getting an assist from literally Deus at the end of their bogus journey. But for me, the coup de grace of my collection of ham-handed god machines is from the Academy Award-winning movie Training Day featuring the Oscar-winning turn of Denzel Washington. It also stars Ethan Hawke, who's the dude who is the trainee to Denzel's trainer. Now, I've only seen this movie a couple times, and I'm not relying on Google to set me straight, so this recollection is very Tarantino-esque. To the best of my memory, Ethan Hawke's character is on his first day on the job as a police detective. He's very green. He's young. He's picked up by his training officer, played by Denzel, who puts the trainee through hell, up to and including attempting to have him murdered. But during the first few minutes of their time together, they spent mostly driving around in Denzel's car. Ethan Hawke spots a woman being attacked in the alley. He makes Denzel stop and charges in and saves the girl from being beaten and worse, probably raped. Now, in the course of the rescue, the girl drops her ID and she also refuses any further assistance from Hawk and the rest of the cops. Hawk pockets the ID, gets back into the car, and they drive off. Now we're going to fast forward about two hours, and we find Hawk sprawled in an empty bathtub with two assassins pointing large handguns in his face. That is when one of the killers notices that something has fallen out of Hawk's pocket. He picks it up, and wouldn't you know it, it's an ID, and it's not just any ID, it's the ID of the killer's cousin. No shit. Let's give her a call. Here, let's pause this murder for a sec so I can confirm this guy's story before we kill him. Beep boop pop boop beep boop pop. Hey, cuz, this is Gerbert. Yeah. Hey, were you raped today? Oh, yeah? You were? Thanks. Say hi to your mother for me. And with that, the murderers change their mind and Hawk lives to fight another day. Now that is how you god machine. 
But as preposterous as this deus ex machina is, and it is an all-time classic, what comes next in the history of algebra is something that if you saw it in a movie, you would laugh out loud. Because what happens next is not just one thing, like the idea of Gerbert's cousin, but it is two things. Two events that in their destructive force were able to pulverize humanity so flat that for much of the known world, and I do mean world, not just the Western or Islamic worlds, but the whole fucking planet thought it was the end of days. The Islamic Empire was first up in line when the first of these apocalyptic events lowered the hammer. In the early 1200s, the Islamic world met Genghis Khan and his golden horde of unstoppable Mongol warriors. So I'm going to reference an excellent article which was written about the contemporaneous rationalization of the invasion of Mongols by the clerics of Islam at the time. This is a good article that lays out the prevalent thoughts of the Muslim elite as faced with the existential threat that had just appeared on horseback on the borders of their empire. Now, it was bad timing as the Islamic world was enjoying a golden age, which most certainly produced some fantastic stuff, but it also bred a certain overconfidence, which proved to be a motivating factor into what was to come next. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this story, though for some of you, you may be unaware of the level of death and destruction levied by the Mongols against the Muslims. I highly recommend the Dan Carlin Hardcore History podcast series all about the subject. It is by far the best source of information on this topic that you will find anywhere. But I cannot leave everything to Dan. It's just such a crazy story, the Mongols. First, it is the recent nature of the devastation they wrought. I mean, most people don't realize that it has only been about 800 years since Genghis Khan. In fact, Dan Carlin points out that it wasn't until the full adoption of artillery and rifles that the threat of the Mongols actually ceased, which is basically the mid-1700s. So for a long time, up until very recently, the Mongols were the boogeyman, and they, as I said, weren't from ancient history. The second part is that there was a study done in 2003 that claimed that one in every 200 men on the planet was directly descended from one man, that being the great Khan, Genghis. Now that's a record scratch of a no shit. Irrit. Now for me, I share this with Dan Carlin, Really, for me, it's the sheer bewilderment I feel for the utter foreignness of the abilities and the conduct of the Mongols. But that is just the Sunday. The cherry on top of that Sunday was the audaciousness of Genghis Khan and his golden horde. Beginning in 1219 AD, the horde descended on the Islamic world and pretty much did exactly what the surviving Muslims of the day chronicled. They all but ended it. They ended what until that time was called the Islamic Empire. Most of the time, the Mongols are created with only ending what was called the Islamic Golden Age. But make no mistake, their vast empire that spanned from the Atlantic Ocean to the rivers of India was laid waste by Genghis Khan and the Khans that would come after. And city after city, the Mongols would ask for immediate surrender. Some cities would oblige, some would defy. Almost all of them would be utterly destroyed regardless. Genghis, in a way that few, if any, humans before or since truly gave zero fucks. While seated on his throne, he presided over the mass beheadings of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of men, women, childs, sheep, goats, pigs, dogs, cats. Now that may appear to be another witty jibe by yours truly, but it's not. When the great Khan leveled the city, he would literally kill every living creature. 
This level of destruction was unnerving and paralyzing. Genghis knew this. He would use it to his advantage. When he arrived at your gates, he would justify the absolute horror with simple logic, as he did in 1221, when he was seated on top of the dais, waiting for the festival of beheading to begin, when he kicked off the event with the following speech. Quote, O people, know that you have committed great sins, and that the ones among you have committed these sins. If you ask me what proof I have of these words, I say it is because I am the punishment of God. If you had not committed great sins, God would not have sent a punishment like me upon you. Unquote. Like me upon you. Game, syllogism, match. Genghis. Later on, some decades later, in 1258 AD, the city of Baghdad, the home of the House of Wisdom and of algebra itself, was conquered by the Mongols. This act was done by the grandson of Genghis Khan, a guy named Helugu. He had obviously paid attention to his grandfather's communication style as he declared to the city that defined Islam's golden age, that housed one of history's most famous centers of learning, that brought forth the concept of a mathematical process that would truly emancipate humanity from its addiction to metaphysical truth, that, quote, I alone am the almighty God on high, and I have set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to be king of all the world, to root out and to pull down, and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. I tell you to announce my command to all the nations, tongues, and tribes of the east, the south, the north, and the west to promulgate it in all the regions of the whole world where emperors, kings, and sovereigns rule, where lordships operate, where horses can go, ships can sail, envoys can reach, letters can be heard, so that they who have ears can hear, those who hear can understand, and those who understand can believe. Those who do not believe will later learn what punishment will be meted out on those who do not believe my commands. Unquote. It's strange. I was trying to come up with a word to describe what happened to Baghdad, and conquered is not an apt enough description of the devastation wrought. Some sources, and again, these are contemporary Muslims to the slaughter, cite a week in which the Mongols put to death 100,000 people. In a week. Without any machinery, chemicals, bombs, or fire. They beheaded them. 100,000 people in less than 168 hours. I read a good line from an article on the website, The Great Course Daily, in an article covering the Mongol sack of the city of Baghdad. The author of that article, a guy named Amon Giri, says, quote, if you're looking for a city raised to the ground as an example, Baghdad of 1258 would be a good choice. And the Mongols did this everywhere they went. They were an unstoppable force that all but wiped out an empire teetering on the edge of true world domination and reduced it to ashes. Now note those dates, 1219, 1258. It is probably not a coincidence that this loosening of the intellectual and financial reins in the West, you know, this is about the time when Fibonacci was trying his best to get math to sprout in the West. It must have been due in a large part to the joy and freedom Europe was having in hearing all about the destruction of their nemesis, the Muslim Empire. I mean, things were starting to look up. It seemed that the struggle to prove whose version of God was better, in that fight, the West version seemed to have TKO'd the best the East had to offer. Allah and his followers were down for the count, and the West wasted no time in taking advantage. 
The Mongols, as you could probably ascertain from their promulgations, were not content to stop laying waste to Islam. So before Baghdad got sacked, long before that, back when Genghis Khan was still alive, Genghis had sent a scouting party west, and the Mongols knew all about Europe. It was most definitely on their hit list. I mean, just using that large scouting party, which was led by a famous Mongol general named Subatai, the Mongols had their own mini invasion of Eastern Europe. And just like the case of Islam, a mixture of overconfidence, greed, and lack of military acumen created military disaster after military disaster. As a small band of Mongols, most estimates put their number under 10,000, routinely crushed armies of hundreds of thousands of men. Now, while the main Muslim horde was crushing Ukraine and Russia, Subutai and his merry band cruises into Hungary and makes it almost as far west as Vienna. Then they stopped. They never journeyed any farther into Europe. They could have, and most certainly would have, wreaked similar destruction on the West as they did to Islam. But the strange political system of the Mongols changed the course of history by forcing the Golden Horde back to Mongolia upon the death of its leader. It happened when Genghis Khan died. It happened when his son died. It will happen again when his grandsons die. It seems that the next Khan could not be anointed anywhere but one place way back on the steps of Mongolia. And with that, they were gone. This would continue to happen through the century or so of Mongol conquest, with each instance of retreat and reboot proving less and less successful. At the end of the day, the Golden Horde never extracted its pound of flesh from Europe. Again, it seemed as if Providence had stepped in and stayed the scythe of death from the Europeans. Not only had the Mongolians crushed their most ardent enemy, now this unstoppable force of death had all but disappeared. So as the West was sloughing off centuries of darkness and hatred for the Muslim infidel, because what was left to hate at this point, they began to grow and prosper, using the barren wasteland that was the Islamic empire as a highway to trade with the Far East. There was an explosion of trade that erupted in Europe, mainly in Italy, in the form of states like Verona, Venice, and Florence. This would become the age of Marco Polo and Kublai Khan. The wasteland that had been the Islamic world had paved the way for great wealth and trade between Far East and the West, known as the Spice Road. No real trading was done with the Near East, as there was no one to trade with. Like a gloating prize fighter, like Cassius Clay stepping over Floyd Patterson as he lays on the canvas, the West literally walked over a civilization torn asunder and pulverized when it saw its own way to start digging themselves out of their own self-imposed exile it had been living under for centuries. By the early 1300s, the Mongols had all but concluded their rampaging and had begun to settle down into a more respectable group, not much different than the Chinese culture that they had conquered almost a century earlier. Over the next 47 years, the West, in the form of the peeps like Marco Polo and these neo-Mongols, led by the grandson of the great and terrible Genghis, the comparatively mild and efficient Kublai Khan. But as wont to happen from time to time in history, the Fire Nation attacked. Okay, not really. It was this very step into modernity, however, this trading, that this very familiar desire to make oneself rich that brought down the very darkest days on the people of the West. Having almost dug their way out of the hole that was the Dark Ages, the medieval Western world was about to be made all but extinct. As Barbara Tuckman puts it in her fantastic book, 
covering the 14th century entitled A Distant Mirror, quote, In October 1347, Genoese trading ships put into the harbor of Messina in Sicily with dead and dying men at their oars. The ships had come from the Black Sea port of Caffa, now called Fedosia, in the Crimea, where the Genoese maintained a training post. The diseased sailors showed strange black swellings about the size of an egg or an apple in the armpits and groin. The swellings oozed blood and pus and were followed by spreading boils and black blotches on the skin from internal bleeding. The sick suffered severe pain and died quickly within five days of the first symptoms. As the disease spread, other symptoms of continuous fever and spitting of blood appeared instead of the swelling. These victims coughed and sweated heavily and died even more quickly within three days or less, sometimes in less than 24 hours. In both types, everything that issued from the body, breath, sweat, blood from the buboes and lungs, bloody urine, and the blood-blackened excrement smelled foul. Depression and despair accompanied the physical symptoms, and before the end, and here she's quoting a contemporary account, death is seen seated on the face, unquote. What Barbara Tuckman is describing is, of course, the bubonic plague. The world that at once seemed to have opened up to the West, shining light once again into what had been a very dark place, was about, to paraphrase the words of Hans Gruber, be taught a lesson in the real use of darkness. They will all be witnesses. The plague began to deal out its particular nasty version of doom over the winter of 1347. At first, there was not a sense of urgency concerning the outbreak, despite its grotesqueness. Plagues were nothing new to humanity. The Gilded Age of the ancient city of Athens was brought down by an outbreak of what is believed to be typhus. But of course, back then, it was the plague. I mean, smaller outbreaks of bubonic plague had occurred in Europe for centuries. One in the 1250s inspired the Pied Piper song. But if you knew your history, and that was a big if, as most people had the education of a farm animal, so their grasp of history was non-existent, but if you were educated enough to have a knowledge of previous outbreaks of a widespread deadly pestilence, there was nothing, absolutely nada, that had happened to any human society up until this point that would compare with the horror and sheer loss of life that was about to ravage most of humanity. By January 1358, it was already too late, as the plague had established a strong hold in the poorest neighborhoods in Italy. Then, in a savvy bit of marketing, the Black Death World Tour formally announced its arrival on the scene with one of the largest earthquakes to ever hit southern Europe. The massive quake swallowed whole towns, opening a crevice over 330 miles long, extending from the city of Naples all the way to Venice. The power of the event was felt as far away as Greece and Germany. So like a thrilling opening set piece in an action movie, the stage had been set epically for what was to come next. Quote, Death coming into our midst like black smoke, a plague which cuts off the young, a rootless phantom which has no mercy for fair countenance. Woe is me of the shilling in the armpit. It is seething and terrible, a head that gives pain and causes a loud cry, a painful, angry knob. Great is it seething like hungry cinders, a grievous thing of ashy color, its eruption is ugly, like the seeds of black peas, like broken fragments of brittle sea coal. The early ornaments of black death, cinders of the peelings of cockleweed, a mixed multitude, a black plague, like halfpence, like berries. Unquote. That particular slice of sunshine 
was from a Welsh writer trying to make us puke as best he could. But that was only the half of it. The plague was a double whammy of misfortune. The Black Death was executing a double pincer movement on the population. Far from being satisfied with the grisly buboes and seeping revulsion, which was caused by the bite from not one, but two different animals, either an infected rat or an infected flea, the plague was also airborne, which had much different symptoms than victims of a bite. The issue was that there was more than one spreader of the disease, and it turns out there was more than one strain of it as well. In fact, this new strain was more communicable, and if you can believe it, more deadly. This airborne form, the respiratory strain, infected the respiratory system and often would cause the death of someone who would catch it in the morning and be dead by nightfall. Considering what we have seen in our own time when it comes to COVID, can you imagine the nightmare that was attempting to understand just what in the hell was happening? Now, in the past year, we have seen in our own world, we have seen backtracking, reversals, and updated best practices concerning what COVID is and how best to deal with it. And we know what we're looking for and understand epidemiology. Well, at least some of us. But what chance did Dark Ages Danny Boy and his buddies have against something as destructive and as multifaceted as the Black Death? Well, shockingly, the medical community in the 1300s was taken a bit off guard by the arrival of the Black Death. Up until this point in time, doctors had had an exalted place in society. It is interesting to note that in a city of 50,000, you would expect to find only about 20 to 25 doctors total for the whole freaking city. That says all you need to know about who the doctors were there for, certainly not the general public. The docs in the days of the encroaching plague were sophisticated members of society that got special privileges. For instance, they could wear fancy clothes, as could their wives, as the sumptuary laws of the time excluded them. So they openly brandished gaudy capes and gold spurs in a time of abject squalor. And in probably the most brazen and truly odd exception, the medical profession of the day relied more on astrology than Christianity and the practice of the healing arts. In a time of extreme religious fundamentalism, the doctors of Europe plied their trade almost solely based on a pagan belief system. For instance, in the official report, yes, this type of shit actually happened back then, requested by the King of France a couple years after the plague, a commission of medical professionals called the Masters conducted their own version of the 9-11 Commission, and as Barbara Tuckman puts it, quote, with careful thesis, antithesis, and proofs, the doctors ascribed it, the plague, to a triple conjunction of Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars in the 40th degree of Aquarius, said to have occurred on March 20th, 1345, unquote. And that actually did become the official word on the cause of the plague. As Tuckman continues, quote, the verdict of the masters became the official version. Borrowed, copied by scribes, carried abroad, translated into Latin into various vernaculars, it was everywhere accepted, even by Arab physicians of Cordova and Grenada, as the scientific, if not popular, answer, unquote. And here's what I find most interesting about this. The fact that the doctors of a multitude of countries were eager to share and learn all about this horrible pestilence, that the trade in the bubonic commission's report actually became a major driving force of language. Tuckman concludes this thought by saying, quote, because of the terrible interest in the subject, the translations of the plague tracts stimulated the use of national languages, 
in that one respect, life came from death, unquote. Now, it's hard to exaggerate when it comes to the Black Death. The sheer scope and breadth of the suffering was something that humanity had literally never encountered before. One of the more interesting parts of the plague is that the dearth of actual writings about it. In a chilling testament to the torment and anguish it must have caused, famous libraries all over Europe and famous authors of the day, places like Perigo and the University of Paris, writers like Froissart and Chaucer, in any of those, there is nary a mention of the plague at all. Most of what we know comes from letters, transactional documents, and a handful of historians and chronicles of the time. We know that on average, the plague killed indiscriminately. Male, female, old, young, rich, poor, all would fall before the plague. The percentages are even, but the numbers themselves, of course, are skewed towards the poor and the destitute paying the higher price in terms of total deaths. But that's to be expected, as they made up almost 90% of the overall population of Europe. The reach of the death's grip did not end with humanity. It afflicted many animals, especially domestic beasts such as sheep and cattle. It also claimed the life of our beloved pets, dogs and cats. Just like the golden horde of Genghis Khan, once it was determined that the city would be taken, everything living was condemned to death. Since the doctors of the time provided ineffectual people turned to any remedy they could offer succor. Whole towns would adopt draconian laws prohibiting even the slightest hint of vice, while on the other hand, just one town over, they started engaging in enormous S&M orgies. I'm not kidding about that. Surviving the plague was open game, and large groups of people started to strip to the waist and whip themselves bloody, praying and lamenting the whole time, begging for penance from their god, these groups would grow into the hundreds, if not thousands, and they would tour. They would tour the countryside, whipping themselves bloody. They called themselves the flagellites, and they were the beginning salvo in a war between the average guy and the Catholic Church that would inspire stuff like the Reformation, and it would be a battle that France would still be fighting in the life of Évariste Galois all the way in the 1830s. The flagellites had no use for the church. They were trying to appease their god directly by passing on the hard and fast rules that governed all of society. Now, they could do this because they were rock stars. When the flagellites arrived in your town and you and your buddies would run to the edge of town just to check it out, then you would see 150, maybe 300 men and some women, always separate, of course, whipping themselves bloody and howling at the moon. And people would rush to touch their wounded backs, licking the blood from their fingers in hopes of warding off the death themselves. Now, these bands of fetishists would become very powerful in a very short time and begin to pose a real threat to the daily operation of corporate religion. I mean, they would sack churches and monasteries. I mean, they didn't give two shits about the Pope. They had orgies where they utilized their much-loved whips. And like their more famous brethren, the Knights Templar, these religious rebels were labeled pagans and eventually grounded to dust by the big bad wheel of the Catholic Church. But they had started something. People started to look elsewhere for help. Some people believed that foul air was the secret to avoiding the plague. So they would actually build bleachers over open cesspools so people could take benefit from the odor and relative comfort. But there was no comfort to be had. In the words of Italian historian Matteo Villani, he was witnessing, quote, the extermination of mankind. And remember, this was all happening fast, much faster than the pace of life 
for the people of Europe at the time. Over the course of 20 or so months, the Black Death did its most extreme damage, millions upon millions of deaths. After it was all said and done, despite the best efforts of the masters of medicine, there was absolutely nothing anyone felt they could do to stop the madness. And that is exactly what happened next. In a world of death on a scale heretofore unknown, the ones not afflicted decided to up the ante on the horror and set about going absolutely Game of Thrones on each other. Stories and tales of horror were commonplace and welcome entertainment for many. Tuckman writes of, quote, In everyday life, passerbys would saw some criminal flog with a knotted rope or chained upright in an iron collar. They passed corpses hanging on the gibbet, decapitated heads and quartered bodies impaled on stakes. The torture and punishment of civil justice customarily cut off hands and ears, racked bodies, burned them, flayed them, and pulled them apart, unquote. In one instance, brothers, quote, took a knife and cut away the monk's testicles or stones and threw them in a lady's face and made her eat them and afterward tied both the monk and the lady into a sack and cast them into the river and drowned them, unquote. And another, though this one seems a little too much of a tall tale, it concerns the husband of a wife who was raped and murdered by, by townspeople in the local inn. The husband proceeded to take the wife's body and cut it up into 12 pieces and mail it to the rapist murderers, who in turn, in true Black Death fashion, instead of being felled by our protagonist, instead form up as a band of 12, descend on the town where the husband is living, and proceed to kill every living thing in the town, including the husband. Good times. And it almost pains me to say this, but wait, it gets worse. Now, you may be asking yourself, how could it possibly get worse than what I've already laid out? Well, I tell you that it gets worse because there is a question that has been asked that has not been sufficiently answered. That question is, who is to blame? And the answer to that question is one that will sound very familiar to most of history. The Jews. There is a line for one of my favorite writers, a guy named Dan Simmons, who started out as a wannabe Stephen King, but has since attained his own form of legitimacy. Anyway, while explaining why he has Jewish people being persecuted in one of his stories, which is set in the very, very far future, he says something to the effect that there will always be a time when Jews will be persecuted. If history is any evidence to this, he does have a point. It didn't take long for the rank-and-file European to point the finger at their Jewish neighbor. In an incredible instance of history repeating itself, even before the height of the plague, Jews were being forced to wear identifying badges, most often swatches of yellow cloth, when they were in public. Not too soon after, homes and property began to be confiscated and sometimes out-and-out burned to the ground. Then the massacres started. Dozens of instances were recorded in which groups of over 100 Jewish people being slaughtered all in one time. As empathetic as one could be concerning what the general mental health of the average person was, and I assure you, as this podcast can attest to, I entertain such thoughts, but even the hardcore history fan in me has to shudder when telling this next story. This one is 100% true. In the town of Basel, or Basel, which is still a place in northwest Switzerland, which, according to its websites, is known for art and culture, it's a home to the largest art gallery in Switzerland. It was also home to an event that took place during the plague that took persecution of Jews to an absurdly cruel level. A year after the earthquake that signaled the start of the dying, In January 1349, 
The entire town of Basel rounded up the population of Jewish people in and around town, led them to a house, locked them inside, and burned them all alive. Now, the internet states that 70 to 90 people lost their lives. Barbara Tuckman puts the number in the hundreds. Her number would be closer to contemporary accounts. But here is the insidious part. This was not just a rundown warehouse that was utilized. It was a house that was specifically designed and constructed on an island in the Rhine River nearby for the express purposes of containing and burning as many Jewish people as possible. So how the fuck long did that take to plan it, to build it, to row the boat back and forth across the river every day? Did they whistle while they worked? Now, when reading about this, I actually put the book down for a few days. I was overwhelmed with the sadness at the ability to sustain such menace and awfulness. I have rarely encountered anything in the many books I have read about the worst places in the world to live, anything that compares with this level of shit. And I got to say it, it's just evil. But wait, there's more. I mean it. Like Dan Simmons says, there will never be a time when Jews are not persecuted. This last part hits particularly close to home because the shit's still happening right now in front of our faces and most of us don't even realize it. I'm talking about the description of the right-wing political cult QAnon as being anti-Semitic. So if you ever wondered why they're considered anti-Semitic, I'll let Professor Tuckman explain. Quote, The belief that Jews perform ritual murder of Christian victims, supposedly from a compulsion to reenact the crucifixion, began in the 11th century, which is, you know, centuries before the plague, and developed into the belief that they held secret rites to desecrate the host. Promoted by popular preachers, a mythology of blood grew in a mirror image of the Christian ritual of drinking the blood of the Savior. Jews were believed to kidnap and torture Christian children whose blood they drank for a variety of sinister purposes, ranging from sadism and sorcery to the need as unnatural beings for Christian blood to give them a human appearance, unquote. So that is why people say QAnon is anti-Semitic. They use almost 1,000-year-old smears that they probably expected no one to notice or more likely didn't care if they did or probably the most likely have no idea themselves and then just in case you think that Barbara Tuckman is just shooting the arrow and painting the target after the fact, when she brings up this example, the book I'm referencing this episode, A Distant Mirror, was written in 1978, long before the viral rise of notorious baby eaters Tom Hanks and Anderson Cooper. Now, this highlights one of my personal cardinal rules. When you encounter a person or a group that utilizes the phrase or the thinking, that can't be right. I, we, and you can pick your pronoun, would have heard of that and their decision-making, that's a huge red flag for me. It's the weakest of logical sauce. I mean, at least anecdotally, I've found few more reliable indicators of being able to not listen to a word this person has to say than this. I mean, it's reason run amok, reason in service of the selfish needs of the thinker, clearing the lowest of bars of our very limited perception and hoisting itself on a foundation of bias and lies that can refute even the most ardent of facts. No, you probably wouldn't have heard of it. Now, if this little detail, the almost word-for-word belief that there was a group of evildoers that drink the blood of children, which is separated by 800 years, it's that that really kind of blows me away. 
I mean, life is not that complicated. There are good things and there are bad things. We live in a world of a whole lot of both of those things happening all the time. We can live in fear or we can just live. It is obvious that we make things worse for ourselves trying to quell fear, whether it is real or not. The hard part for me, it's hard to see the threat that the fearful of 2021 say they're dealing with. Unless you count that being white doesn't mean you're special anymore which seems to be the underlying fuel that is powering our current crisis of fear. Now, on the other hand, the people dealing with the Black Death at least really did have something to be afraid of, and it was quite possibly one of the worst places to find oneself in the history of the human race. It was hardly America in 2021. Though it is not good company to be in, at least they had something real to blame their abhorrent behavior on. Now, over the course of just months, not years, months, the Western world would see the death of up to one-third of the population. One out of every three people would die. This number is refuted by many. I use it because it's dramatic, and it is easy to understand. Most estimates, including the much-cited Professor Tuckman, put the number closest to 20%. But most experts are clear that there is no way of really knowing. So I'll stick with my one-third number, simply for the fact that the plague killed dogs too. And that totally sucks the wank immaculate. It's not hard to understand how this would have an effect on, well, everything, including the spread of algebra. But knowledge was not all that took a back seat to the death and misery. It was also the case that even the most bedrock foundational beliefs were rendered moot by the death. What all these horrible examples highlight is a society that is losing its faith. Losing its faith in the practical, as farms and businesses were left unattended, taxes left uncollected, festivals left uncelebrated. Losing faith in the healers who turned to flimsy astrological bullshit in a feeble attempt to hold the end of the world at bay. Lost their faith in the rulers who fled the cities and towns, which turned out to be the only way to avoid the plague, leaving millions to die horribly. Under the unrelenting bludgeoning of the plague, the people of the West lost their faith in faith. No matter how lofty the decree, whether coming from a king, a pope, a medical master, none of the answers produced were sufficient to explain what the fuck was happening. For those left standing as the tide of death subsided, remember this happened in the span of just two harvests, which was a very reliable measure of time for the average peasant. For those who did not succumb to the great death, there was no greater belief than that their belief had failed them. Their God had abandoned them. From the book, A Distant Mirror, quote, Amid accumulating death and fear of contagion, people died without last rites and were buried without prayers, a prospect that terrified the last hours of the stricken. A bishop in England gave permission to people to make confession to each other as was done by apostles, quote, or if no man is present, then even a woman, unquote. And if no priest could be found to administer extreme unction, quote, then faith must suffice, unquote. Pope Clement VI found it necessary to grant remissions of sin to all who died of the plague because so many were unattended by priests. The book continues, The plague was not the kind of calamity that inspired much mutual help. Its loathsomeness and deadliness did not herd people together in mutual distress, but only prompted their desire to escape each other. Again, the book is quoting 
uh, someone from the time of the plague, quote, magistrates and notaries refused to come and make wills of the dying. Even the priest did not come to hear confessions. Now, a clerk of the Archbishop of Canterbury reported the same as English priests, quote, turned away from the care of the benefices from fear of death, unquote. And a writer from the city of Siena in Italy wrote, And no bells tolled, and nobody wept, no matter what his loss, because almost everyone expected death, for this is the end of the world. Unquote. The math was just as cruel to the clergy. The lower down the totem pole you were, the more likely you were to die of the plague. Monks and priests died, sometimes to the man, but most of them died behind the walls of their church or monastery. The higher you went up the hierarchy, the better your odds of survival. The Pope survived the ordeal. He spent most of the summer of 1348 locked in his enormous room, seated between two giant fires. Now, regardless of the disparity in overall number of deaths, almost all facets of the Catholic Church chose to cut and run. In most cases, whether or not an archbishop does something has little bearing on the common peasant. But you can count leadership as something that does have a direct effect. And when it comes to leadership and accountability, as we found out through the outcome of the second impeachment trial and the calamitous Texas power catastrophe, those who crow loudest about stuff like leadership and accountability are typically the first to abandon them. Abandon the concepts at the first sign of trouble and more reprehensibly, at the first sign of political opportunity. So the men, like men of throughout history, the men in charge ran like cowards, refusing to do the one thing that they allegedly were put on this earth to do, to offer aid and succor to the suffering, to hear confession, to administer last rites and usher in an infinity of peace as one leaves this mortal coil. It was a betrayal that would prove very difficult to overcome. It is interesting to contrast the two existential crises that we just covered. First, there was the massacre and destruction of the Islamic Empire at the hands of the Mongols. This threat was faced mostly by the Muslims, and they most certainly thought their little slice of the end of the world was all about the big guy upstairs. They, the humans, had erred. They had sinned, and what was happening to them was penance. In fact, that is what the article I used was all about the one where they get the great quote from Genghis Khan that ends with the question as to why else would God have sent a punishment like him? The article, which is entitled The Mongols as the Scourge of God in the Islamic World, pretty much sums it up. It makes the argument that by presenting the Mongols as a version of penance that needs to be paid by decree of an almighty, going so far as to putting those words in the mouth of the invading army, allows the ruling religious class to maintain their positions politically and spiritually. They did this because they were able to offer the surviving population something vital, an answer. No matter its veracity, the version of why the Mongols were there was short, simple, and easy to swallow explanation for all the suffering. Now compare that to the West's ordeal with the Black Death, where undoubtedly there were plenty of cries about sinners and punishments being doled out by the man on high. But what the West didn't have was that all-important, simple answer to the big question of why this was all happening. On one hand, it is hard to find fault in the clergy's inability to make sense of something like the plague. But on the other hand, they had one job, and providing answers was not it. They were there to provide the faith needed to help overcome the indescribable agony the world was suffering through. 
Instead, they ran behind their fortified walls, surviving on the food provided to them by the very peasants they were not just shunning, but condemning to an eternity in hell. That answer will prove much harder to swallow for the people of the West. How do I know this? Well, the short answer is take a look at our cultures now. The West is far from a cohesive faith-based monoculture that defined its first 1,500 years or so. The Middle East? Now, my layman's opinion is that they have held on to their religious leadership mantle much more stridently. Their faith, while not as intense as in the days of Al-Khwarizmi, is still pretty much the gold standard for examples of fundamentalism. One corporate religion was able to maintain its grasp on power, while the other's grasp on power has ebbed to the point of irrelevance. The corporate religion of the West had no one to blame but themselves. At the height of the dying, the Pope, Clement VI, totally roast his church leadership by saying, quote, What can you preach to the people? If on humility, you yourselves are the proudest of the world, puffed up, pompous, and sumptuous in luxuries. If on poverty, you are so covetous that all the benefices in the world are not enough for you, unquote. The Holy Roman Emperor and King of Germany, a guy named Lothar of Saxony, piled on when he said, quote, When those who have the title of shepherd play the part of wolves, hearsay grows in the garden of the church. The world of Islam would recover, however imperfectly, in the version of their religious leadership. The world of Christianity would also recover, but it would not be in the strict version of a single corporate religion. That spell had been broken. After the Mongols, the once great empire of Islam, who had conceived and fostered our initial ideas concerning algebra, coalesced more or less into what we know today. Independent sects of faith that carved up the geographic region known as the Middle East. Its days of being the intellectual center of the world was trod over by the unrelenting hooves of the Golden Horde. As I've said before, algebra is a survivor. And after taking its leave from the now demolished House of Wisdom, algebra was once again on the move. For there appears to be an opportunity to be had, a vacuum to be filled. The hole that is left in the Western world by the Black Death would provide an excellent hiding place for the fledgling mathematical concept of algebra. If it could just survive the chaotic century that followed the plague, then it would find itself in the hearts and minds of the best and brightest of the Renaissance, transforming before our very eyes from the larval stage of practicality into the full-fledged butterfly of world-changing understanding. But it would have to survive. And like any good opportunity, there would be major risks involved in venturing back into the consciousness of the West. This is a population, a common sense that had been battered like no other in the annals of recorded history. If any culture suffered from mass PTSD, it was the survivors of the Black Death. The century that followed would be nothing short than a version of Game of Thrones. In fact, many of the sources used by George R.R. R. Martin can be traced back to this grisly time in Western history. In this chaos, a world devoid of a cohesive belief system, a world condemned to a hellish eternity by the gatekeepers of the faith themselves, this world began to search for something else, something to make sense of their world. For who in their right mind would put their faith in the faithful any longer? Worse than ineffectual, they just didn't even try. And it doesn't matter. Even if effort is not rewarded, it is effort nonetheless. But when there is no effort or worse, an anti-effort, effort expended to worsen the situation, what was one to do? Where was one to turn? So much like the extinction of the dinosaurs, the meek started to inherit the earth. 
The small ideas hiding in the shadows began to emerge as the behemoths of the West started to crumble. Like the mammals 65 million years ago, algebra had just been biding its time, waiting for the world order to be shuffled. That event, the clearing of the stage to allow for the much more uninhibited evolution of mammalian life, eventually led to us, us humans, ruling the planet in much the same way as the thunder lizards that our distant descendants replaced. In the wake of the collapse of the fundamentalist religion that had run the Western world for over a millennia, the small mammals were not actually tiny shrew-like animals at all. Instead, they were tiny, simple ideas, like Arabic numbers, abacus, and restoration and completion. They began to evolve at a heightened pace. The world was once again clearing the stage for something new to drive the unrelenting wheel of evolution, the unstoppable race to exhaust as much energy as possible as quickly as possible. And at first glance, mammals didn't look like much of a replacement for those energy hogs the dinosaurs must have been. But if you waited 65 million years or so, you could hardly argue that those minuscule little shrews that eventually became humanity haven't perfected the senseless pursuit of wasting energy. Thanks to the cataclysmic plague that ravaged humanity and wiped out a goodly portion of them, there was an opportunity for a new way of doing things. The ruling classes had abdicated their duty, and it was time for something new. This idea of something taking advantage of such an opportunity, in this case, learning, facts, algebra, science, or whatever, is not an isolated one. In fact, earlier in this very episode, I brought up the fascinating insight about the plague helping spread literacy. That national language utilization rose in order to disseminate the straight-fire conclusion of the medical masters of Paris. Now, I always hear that fifth dimension tune in my head when I think of this now. When the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter is lined with Mars. Anyway, this was due to the fact that everyone left had at least a morbid, if not practical, need to understand the unexplainable. So the extraordinary step of translating the document from the typical Latin and into the common vernacular started. This was one of the first instances of this happening on such a wide scale and undoubtedly had an effect on national languages and literacy in general. It seems that I may have found the answer to that question after all I had been asking myself for the past 25 years or so. What would it take for someone's belief systems to change? For someone like Lance Corporal Fisher to start seeing the world in place differently? When it comes to buttressing the argument that due to the unprecedented level of devastation caused by the plague, a betrayal of the core concept of faith occurred, the contract between the laymen and the layperson was broken and the Western world was forever changed. As ever, Professor Tuckman puts it best, quote, Survivors of the plague, finding themselves neither destroyed nor improved, could discover no divine purpose in the pain they had suffered. God's purposes were usually mysterious, but this scourge had been too terrible to be accepted without questioning. If a disaster of such magnitude, the most lethal ever known, was a mere wanton act of God, or perhaps not God's world at all, then the absolutes of a fixed order were loosed from their moorings. Minds that opened to admit these questions could never be shut. Once people envisioned the possibility of change in that order, the end of the age of submission came in sight. The turn to individual conscience lay ahead. To that extent, the Black Death may have been the unrecognized beginning of modern man.